welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music by Austin Wintery for Aliens Fireteam Elite. It's a squad shooter from Cold Iron Studios within the Aliens universe. You know, the face-hugging, chest-exploding, H.R. Geiger-designed aliens. And the soundtrack is fabulous, with many subtle and less subtle references and tributes to the famous film scores, which, by the way, Alien, the first, written by Jerry Goldsmith. Aliens, the second movie, was uh, done by uh, James Horner. And Aliens 3, Elliot Goldenthal, and then the others, right? Um, Austin's music has a compelling energy to it and a very beautiful lyricism with some really great acoustic stuff from oboe, low brass. Uh, there's instruments called the serpent and the zephoon. Tons of great percussion, all the good stuff. A little bit of didgeridoo here and there, just like the original score, etc. At one point, uh, Austin will reference the phrase, sticks with boots on, which is from a story I told him before we started actually recording on tape. So to give you that context, a dear friend of mine, Nikki, uh, doesn't read music. And he said that when he looks at music on a page, it looks like sticks with boots on, some of which are see-through. So I love that uh, delightful description of music notation. So I shared it with Austin and he vowed to insert it in the interview, which he does uh, twice eventually. So in any event, that's context for that. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll find this conversation with Austin on it. And uh, join us on Discord to talk about this and other episodes. That link is in the show notes. And if you're able to become a patron, visit us at patreon.com slash level and find out the kinds of perks that we will bestow upon you for your patronage. So uh, patreon.com slash level again. That's the uh, website there. All right. Here is Austin talking about Aliens Fireteam Elite. The kind of broad description of the game, irrespective of any musical discussion, is that it's an online co-op shooter. Uh, it, it is very much Aliens, um, and therefore a kind of successor to the legacy of James Cameron in the second film, not to be confused with Ridley Scott and the kind of ultra-moody, atmospheric suspense horror of Alien. Uh, in so many ways, if the game that Creative Assembly did a few years ago, Alien Isolation, is very clearly... A descendant of the Ridley Scott film, you know, our our conscientious differentiation was no. This is an action game. This is and not just an action game. It's a you know colonial marine squad shooter. You play with friends. Uh, you know, it's it's a very different beast. It, it it is narratively driven. The campaign does follow story beats and 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 there's even like novelization tie-ins and all kinds of fun bits. So it's not like it dismisses the importance of telling a story. But it places the uh, over-the-shoulder third-person action gameplay front and center, um, and and it's fun. It's one of those games that that uh, I was just thinking about this earlier. That I've been very lucky to work on games that are varyingly, you know, either you could think of them as experimental or you could think of them as uh, trying to just whether experimental is too loaded of a term in the in the the vein of like say avant-garde. It's it's fair to nonetheless call a lot of the games I've worked on trying to push where the 
current fences are on what we think of games as being. I've been very lucky to work on a bunch of games like that, not least of which yeah. Journey, obviously, uh, really kind of challenged these these notions. And and what I have found so wonderful about this is it's kind of like one of the few games that I've did that that I've done that has this utterly unpretentious desire to just be fun in the traditional kind of old fashioned, almost arcade sense of, of video games. Yeah. Uh, and that's and, and now, and I say that as non reductively as I can possibly be because yeah. to, to me, that's a wonderful achievement to, to, to be just viscerally fun yep. is, is just as difficult as to be this kind of probing, meditative, interesting thing as a, as a, as a journey or an Abzu, like they're, they're, they're fundamentally different challenges. And uh, so, you know, even though there's plenty of things to kind of get all excited about in the, in the sort of artsy end of the spectrum, even with this game, it, it really was just so fun to work on a thing where uh, so many of the design decisions were just, is this cool? Will people just <laughs> like this? Will this be fun for them? Uh, and like the, the team always had that front and center, uh, you know, where, which I found very healthy and, and, and it yielded great results. I really like the game. It's done well. You know, it, it has, it has sustained an audience. It's actually crazy. It's been out now a, a solid year Yeah. And, uh, and people still, I mean, the fact that, that uh, the album only came out today while we're, you know, hours before we are recording this and uh, people seem, you know, excited. I'm actually getting very positive reaction on Twitter and Instagram and stuff. Uh, and for a thing that's technically a year old, I kind of thought, oh, there might be a little bit of a, oh, that I forgot about that. Like, <laughs> but, but it, it's the game seems to have actually sort of sustained its player base and and all yep. that kind of thing. So, anyway, somewhere in there was the answer to what is the game. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, and, uh, yeah, I think I think people have said it's fun. I've I've heard it compared numerous times to Left for Dead, which is kind of the epitome of fun mm -hmm. squad killing, right? I mean, it's like of course that's fun and to get to shoot a bunch of xenomorphs is is fun as well. Um you know, it's Left not Left for Dead was for sure one of the kind of big um obvious sort of genre staples to look at and yeah. and, and became an interesting case study uh because a lot of on a lot of games like that tilt towards a very subtle musical approach mm -hmm. and very understandably because you're competing not only with the game's sounds which the players are relying on to facilitate playing the game but they're also usually talking to each other over right. discord or whatever and so it's like you know we bet best to err on the on the on a kind of more understated less is more approach and so it was, it was fun that cold iron the the developer were, were very you know, unapologetically, like, let's just go for it. Like if players turn down the music because they want to talk to each other, like let them make that call. But let's let's just offer up this idealized vision of what we think an aliens thing ought to be, which especially aliens is pretty bombastic and full of carnage and madness. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, even despite being a squad shooter, uh, we, we definitely went the opposite road of uh, in terms of just visceralness. Yeah. And I say that with nothing but admiration. I, I did a chat with Martin. Martin Stee Anderson uh, regarding oh. the the new um, not not Left for Dead but um, the the kind of latest why am I blanking Back for Blood which you know again he he, he they came out right on top of each other as as kind of similar games conceptually mm -hmm. but sort of opposite scores in so many ways yeah which was fun contrast 
Yeah, yeah. Alien and aliens, all of those stories are, are definitely have a solid place in the world of sci-fi. Like, I mean, you know, these are oh, some yeah. of the first movies that I would consider kind of scary, almost horror that I watched and loved. I mean, because I was a person who was very not into scary movies, but I love <laughs> right. these films. And and part of the reason I love them is because the scores are so great. And, I mean, the, the composers that have worked on these films uh, were legends, you know, with obviously Jerry Goldsmith, James Horner, RIP to both of those fine fellas, and Elliot Goldenthal. And, um, you know, what... <laughs> It's it's clear listening to your music that these were sources of musical inspiration as well, or that you kind of wanted to stay Not in that world. So, um, I I love um, you know these kind of the blending of this more actiony kind of environment, but also very you have these these um, opportunities to have these kind of slower, sparse, melodic. Mm. Atonally so, but you know, mm, yeah. uh, melodic and lush and beautiful, even though crunchy and dissonant. <laughs> so I mean, I just, I just loved all the contrast in in the score. So, right. so, so now let's just let's talk about your music, man. It's it's really great. Well, that's that's really kind, and you're and you're and you're absolutely dead on the money. That um, you know, Goldsmith kind of is my my reigning champion uh, sort of amongst all composers has just yeah. always been my absolute top of the heap, uh, diehard, uh, you know, fan and believer in, in his work and, and alien is one of many career highlights. Um, and so, you know, the opportunity to kind of pay a little bit of a, an intentional homage was fun because is as passionate as I am about him, uh, the thing I've always found, the thing that I would hopefully say is most influential about him on me was more his philosophy of trying to kind of reinvent himself each time and of getting under the skin of a project to find something that he had never personally tried before and that hopefully brought something out of that film that you wouldn't have gotten through the actors, the script, the cinematography, that he found a way to let the music give voice to some subtextual idea that could only have come through that way, you know, this sort of emotional underpinning. Um, and he had a he had just an uncanny knack for that. And, and to, to be able to write such psychoanalytically deep music, which was also itself somehow totally new and reinvented time and again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's hard to, understate the level of genius I think that that requires and as is commonly mentioned about Goldsmith you know sadly he, he applied that genius to overwhelmingly kind of mediocre or even bad movies so Alien is a special one because it's one of the few actually really great kind of classics that he scored uh, where you know the the the, the movie uh, you know has really kind of been one of the the ones to sustain his legacy and mm. so i mean they even quote his um score uh in alien isolation which was amazing i never thought i'd play a video game that had jerry goldsmith music in it and and that was <laughs> amazing you know i just loved that it was it was subtle but it was really it was, un, it was unmissable and and um so 
So yeah, I, I knew I had to kind of wrap Goldsmith in beyond the philosophical admiration I have for him. Yeah. This was one of those times where I thought, okay, no, I really do want to make an explicit musical gesture here. Uh, but separate from that, Horner's Aliens, and, and, and also I'm glad you mentioned Goldenthal. To me, Goldenthal is maybe one of the greatest living composers that there is. I mean, he's just, he's right there. You know, he, I think his bag of tricks may not be quite as wide as Goldsmith's but his bag of tricks is quite spectacular regardless of that and and whether it's something as delicate as frida which is sort of anomalous in his output or just one of many of these just unhinged completely almost psychotically brilliant scores like like uh, titus or interview the vampire or or uh you know i loved i was one of the few people that both admired uh, Uematsu's Final Fantasy, and I thought Goldenthal was, wrote this just towering achievement of a score. Um, I remember him getting a lot of hate because everybody was like, if it's not Uematsu, it's useless. And I thought, you know, this is Elliot Goldenthal. Um, <laughs> and um, I mean, my God, the guy wrote Interview with the Vampire in like 13 days or something like that and got an Oscar nomination. And it's still to this day one of the most awesome kind of gothic horror scores ever written. Mm-hmm. And um, Michael Collins is maybe my favorite score he's ever written. It just goes on and on and on. The guy's amazing. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and Alien 3 was one of his first scores. It was Fincher's first real movie. And, and uh, even though a lot of the people involved with it tend to disavow it, um, the score is full of such creative ways to be unsettling and full of <laughs> such just like where you hear these sounds and you go, I don't know how they made that sound, especially – in those days, like I, I could kind of right. imagining all our modern plugins and Pro Tools and sample libraries, I could imagine somebody doing that now a little bit more readily. But back then, you know, just the sheer imagination of it. So the goal was, yeah, okay, you know, how do I ingest all that consciously, knowing that there's like a franchise that will, there's like a, 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 a not just a, a franchise. What I mean is there is a uh, there's fans of this franchise, including myself who would who would know who would recognize those gestures that would that would that would that would see the thing they love reflected in the work you mm-hmm. want to make sure to do that but i'm i'm really staunchly opposed to the increasingly common like as south park put it the member berries kind of trend to lazily just sort of rehash old ideas yeah um and and you know kind of leverage the nostalgia as the the dopamine hit you know and not really try to have the courage as it were to try something new knowing Mm -hmm. that you know if it's a beloved franchise you have to just accept the odds that your work is probably not going to live up to the thing that people have loved for 40 years and you're you know that that just comes with the territory of signing on the dotted line but to try to outmaneuver that by lazily repurposing the work of you know arguably greater creatives than oneself is not the way to go so i thought okay and and so lucky to have the game developer 100 percent behind me on this where i said i want to pay homage to goldsmith and horner you know we're gonna have our martial snare drums you know that's like such the telltale sign of aliens it's just non-stop <laughs> colonial marine drum corps kind of stuff so we're gonna go all in on that but i really want to try to go places that i feel like none of these other scores went and you know, some people will like it, some some won't, and all opinions will be valid. Uh, and yeah, I mean, look, I've I've seen I've seen people as recently as today 
uh, go, yeah, this isn't really alien music. Um, and then I've also seen people as recently as today say, you know, my, my greatest hope was that they said, you know, this felt like you took aliens and then went somewhere with it where you, yeah. it's like a child. It's like, it's like, it's like aliens had like a, a secret soiree and birthed a child that we never knew about. So you can like <laughs> see the genetic markers of the familiar parent, but yet there's like another parent that you never knew about that is in the equation, you know, a kind of, mm -hmm. a kind of tryst that, uh, that yielded this, this uh this other child where you know it's got the it's got the familiar and the unfamiliar uh that that yeah. was the goal and some people see in general actually I, I feel like i've been very lovingly treated by the various kind of like online fandoms like there's various aliens subreddits and stuff that are full of people you know who way before the game and long after the game are talking about aliens because they love aliens all day and yeah i've seen like people say really nice things uh about about the score and the kind of some of the really weird choices that were made for it and and so I, i'm really grateful that it wasn't just dismissed out of hand for being different you know I think um, I think you know from from the very opening track you can listen to it and hear that world and that's really fantastic uh, and and I love too the really um, you know less obvious ways that you pay homage maybe through instrumentation or like using the didgeridoo right or <laughs> um, you know that just made me smile and and I. I just, I love the things that you did with electric bass. Uh, the oboe stuff is absolutely gorgeous, of course. I don't know how to write music without Kristen. Right? I, I mean, uh, you know. it's, she's, she's brilliant. Um, and, Truly. And then we have to talk about the, the fact that, you know, was it Goldsmith that used Serpent? Yeah, we had two of them playing together. The instrument, the Serpent, and... Um, the Zafoon. No one used that. That was new, right? <laughs> this was your addition was the Zafoon. So we have to talk about the freaking Zafoon. <laughs> yeah. So that one is, uh, that's again, you know, credit to Kristen, who I just, she's like this musical soulmate. I just don't know. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We first met the better part of 10 years ago when mm. she did a cover on English horn of of journey's theme nascence and put it up on her YouTube channel. And I remember thinking she has all the, she, she ticks every box here because it was gorgeous playing. It was well recorded, especially yeah. considering like it was a living room, you know, home recording <laughs> kind of situation. And that was way less common from, you know, this is way pre pandemic where musicians yep. weren't assumed to know how to engineer themselves. Right. Nowadays, pretty much every musician realized they have to be able to do that because they, you know, sessions can get canceled at the drop of a hat yeah. when, you know, people, the wrong person tests positive for COVID and, you know, an 80 piece orchestra will be dismissed like it. So we live in a much more volatile world, even, even as we kind of increasingly dare to regard the pandemic in the rear view mirror, 
or at least the most severe version of the pandemic, there's still a volatility to things that it introduced that has required musicians to all get on board with this. And she was so ahead of the curve uh, on this on this subject. I think just as a natural product of living in Orlando, hardly a recording hub. So she just said, well, if I want to participate in this, I better do it myself. I love the kind of entrepreneurial spirit of that. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, and so, she, you know, she engineered it. She mixed it. it. It all sounded fantastic. It was great playing. And I also just admired the kind of just the kind of I'm just going to do this nature, the kind of almost mm -hmm. gumption of it. The hilarious thing is I discovered years later, you know, when Journey came out, I remember I, I, I got such my, my inbox kind of exploded. Um, yeah. And I discovered years later that she her she had reached out to me uh, to ask for permission to do that. And I never even saw her email. And <laughs> and so she did it anyway, which I love. She was like. <laughs> The, the 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 asking for permission was just kind of this novelty like this um sort of uh going through the motions but then right. in the end didn't really care if i was going to offer permission or not so of course i couldn't resist when i discovered that email like five years later to write back then and go you know what okay go ahead uh because it was that video that made me call her and and say i'd love to make the oboe the featured instrument of abzu and would you be willing to record it began our relationship you know we worked on abzu on and off for several years it came yeah. out in 2016 and then um i literally i think i've maybe written one or two things maybe that i haven't featured her on uh because the thing is she plays everything so she it's does. like there's just no there's just no one of these days she's gonna get bored of wins and call me and say by the way i also play violin and viola and marimba and tuba and and i'm just <laughs> waiting for the day um, but in the meantime, yeah, we, we've, we've developed a fun pattern of identifying interesting instruments that she doesn't own and uh, like I'll order it or she'll order it or whatever. And I'll say, you know, you've got a month, get ready. We're going to start using this. <laughs> get ready. And, um, so yeah, I don't remember when she first brought up this Zephoon. Uh, of course I had never heard of it. It's a bizarre, it's like an instrument that shouldn't exist. It's got this horrible yeah. sound. It's kind of like when you hear bassoon players and oboe players like warming up the reed with the mouthpiece detached and it's like this honking just ugly and it's like if you just do that in a way where you can actually play notes but it's that color it's basically that um and so it was like we got to use this uh you know this if we're in a if we're in a world where you need serpent and didgeridoo and other kind of otherworldly sounds very much the goldsmith side of the equation. You know, Horner's score is far more straight ahead with the use of the orchestra. Mm -hmm. uh, goldsmith and and Goldenthal, of course. Goldenthal was more like musical sound design in a way, but but Jerry using these odd instrumental combinations and 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 um, even there's things as a little aside. One of the things that I really love about Goldsmith's score is he uses the big orchestral chimes, you know, like the kind of orchestral bells a lot in his score. Yeah, yeah. And that was one of the ways that I said, you know, that's a sound. I always, I always like those, but you use them sparingly because a, a little bit of that goes a long way. <laughs> but he uses them a bit unapologetically 
in the really aggressive moments where you just hear this, you know, there's this great face hugger sequence in the original Alien where the orchestra's just doing this and every time he has this little kind of you hear them clang striking the bell and I thought I got to I got to use that gesture as my as one of my little goldsmith isms that most people won't know that's where this is coming from yeah. but I can't not because it it makes it feel like alien to me uh in a way that's not ripping off something you know m- more obvious like a melody or or whatever or or sub- like it felt it felt i don't know it felt subtle it felt the right degree of subtle um and so yeah this zaffoon was in that same vein of a sound that if he'd known about it he probably would have used it you know it's that kind of that yeah. kind of thing Probably the ultimate culmination of our relationship to the Zafun was, um, you know, this website Cameo. No. Where, um, so Cameo, there's a if you go on there, it's basically a bunch of celebrities that if you know you give them anywhere oh, yeah, from yeah, yeah. twenty bucks to like two hundred bucks, they'll record like a selfie for you, or that you can have or gift to a friend or whatever. And and uh, so you know, it's a pretty cool thing. I've I have a few actor friends that um you know they it's like they especially in the pandemic when uh you know a lot of work stopped and whatnot it it provided a a great income opportunity especially for those that would normally be doing uh comic cons signing signing photos or prints and things like that or or doing selfies with with folks after a q a or those sides of things it Mm -hmm. gave them a way to kind of connect with their audience and still kind of earn the income that they would have otherwise earned and so one day I happened to see that uh, uh, Kenny G uh, was doing uh, cameo. So I, as a gift for Kristen, I got him. When you buy it, it'll say, "Do you want them to?" If this is a gift for someone, do you have? Do you want them to say something specific? Yeah. And so I got Kenny G to say, "Kristen, I want you to know I'm gonna learn the Zafun. Um <laughs> And uh, uh, it was basically my life's greatest work. Yes. Uh, and. Uh, <laughs> I felt I could I could contentedly retire as a member of public life. Uh, That's wonderful. Uh, and just disappear into a cabin in the woods after that because I'm never going to top Kenny G. <laughs> you know, th- if only if only there was some I could like follow up and you know actually see him playing one. That would be the only way to one up that. But right. um, you gotta wonder if he like Google searched it and bought one on Amazon or something after. Yeah, he exactly. Finished that. One task. can dream uh, that that is what happened, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, in any case, so yeah, that was one. And it was actually especially cool on this one to, 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 to use because we also would pitch it down an octave through, uh, not through normal pitch shifting, but through a kind of like octavizer guitar pedal where, where it's, it's a very unsteady shift. So it's kind of, you hear it jittering, like it's trying to play back the pitch that she actually recorded at. Yeah. So it's instead of, you know, doing this, da, 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 it's kind of this, da, 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 it's kind of shaking, <laughs> which just makes it already a kind of unpleasant tone color that yeah. much jankier.
it was it was yeah, it was so much fun. It was so great to have an excuse to get this weird and it basically be the right thing no matter what. Yeah, yeah, it's a unique sound, and and I, I liked it qu- quite a bit. Um, well, also I loved all the your yeah no attention to these details is of, fun. Of course, the the low brass man. I mean, the low brass through this is so great, and and I love even like um, uh, in one of the videos that you have on your mm. very vibrant and vivacious YouTube channel uh, includes a a little bit of the recording session. And there's like 9,000 trombones in one room, which I love. (laughs) Clearly not 9,000, but a big room full of low brass, which was great. 8,000. Yeah, Yeah, it was was one of those where because we were um, in the pandemic, uh, you know, there was real caps on how big a group you could fit into the room. And I'm, right. I'm always looking for how do we lean into our situation to make an interesting result out of whatever card we're dealt. You know, that's mm-hmm. I've always admired, you know, when when a score or when any project, whether it's a score or otherwise, you know, like it, it's usually budget that drives this kind of thing where you go, OK, well, we can't afford, you know, the London Symphony. So uh, what can we use that? is such an interesting choice that it doesn't actually make you ever think about the London Symphony. You don't find yourself going, that sounds cool and like upholds your MIDI elements elsewhere or whatnot, but but you know, it would have been really cool if you'd been able to do it properly. It's like a great, a well-executed score if it's even just, you know, banging two sticks together. If you commit to that, hopefully that's in the end, all that it needs and you don't find yourself thinking oh where, you know where's the rest i i like it it, it should just i remember a, fr- a friend uh once messaged me after listening to the banner saga he was like i've been listening to the score for a week and it only just occurred to me there aren't any strings anywhere in this score it's all <laughs> winds and brass yeah. and it was like that was like that's the best review i could possibly get because the idea was to commit to this aesthetic such that it doesn't you don't ever find your imagination thinking about the things it's not yeah and uh <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, this one, the pandemic, I mean, we, you know, I, I, the, the game, I, I, I have nothing but positive things to say about cold iron and, and, you know, I was hired by Disney and then in the middle of working on it, Disney got acquired by Fox. So the, the, the people I was working for by the end of the game was Disney, but it was definitely Fox at the beginning uh, of it <laughs> as the, as the, uh, as the holder of the IP of the, you know, Fo- yeah. 20th century Fox was the, was the uh, studio that released alien and aliens and obviously in the whole franchise. So mm-hmm. across the board, everyone I worked with was, was fantastic. We didn't have unlimited budget by any stretch though. So I, I had to be a bit creative with how I used the money to begin with, but then the pandemic added an extra wrinkle to that. Cause I had started well before the pandemic. And then that was like a midstream adjustment we had to make. Okay. And so it was, okay, well, what kind of uh, forces can be recorded safely and <laughs> give a, give, exactly the sound we're going for. So then, yes, it became this, you know, sort of like half dozen trombones and, you know, combination of tenor and bass trombones playing discrete parts. So I could make these real thick chords and things. And, mm-hmm. um, and then also two tubas who double chimbasso so that if we really want a very beefy brass sound, we can get it. But I actually barely use the chimbasso because again, tuba is actually fairly prominent in Goldsmith's Alien. And I thought, it's such an underused sound, especially yeah. outside of the kind of 
noble brass corral. You know, you think of like John Williams, Hymn to the Fallen from Saving Private Ryan and that kind of warm, lush brass where the tuba is the glue that holds the whole thing together. And you can't possibly pull off that kind of like funeral sound or or noble kind of stately regal sound. You, You couldn't do it without tuba. But Tuba is an underestimated force of nature in a more kinetic environment. And, and one of my favorite examples is actually also John Williams is the, um, the Battle of Hoth from Empire Strikes Back. We just got this, you know, this melody, this recurring motif through that that's, that's prominently carried by tuba. And uh, it's freaking awesome. And so Goldsmith also uses it uh, in Alien a few years before Empire Strikes Back. Uh, uh, one year before, just in some of these, like the sequence where the very first, the classic sequence where, you know, they're in the air duct and they're looking at the lights blinking and they're looking around. They don't see him. I don't see him. I don't see him. It's, it's coming right behind you. All that kind of that classic alien, uh, you know, terrifying sequence. Um, there's, you know, tubas plays kind of an outsized role. At least it always, to me, felt like he was kind of featuring it in a way beyond its, its generic kind of low pedal point type roles and mm-hmm. so you know let's let's see if we can kind of one up that a bit with two of them where we can write two part tuba lines which i i had also done a fair bit on the banner saga and just absolutely love doing i love the sound of two tubas moving independently it's just such a glory i just did a netflix series where i was i took it to another level we had four tubas and that was the only brass uh and it was so much fun and i just i just yeah, i never get tired of that color it's so mm-hmm. underappreciated and so yeah, yeah need two tubas and then and then yeah the only other rest of the orchestra uh a conventional orchestra in that sense was uh was two pairs of cello like pods i kind of thought of them as where i had cello group one on the left side of the room and cello group two on the right side of the room doing a kind of call and response with one another as as instead of like violin one and two it was cello one and two mm-hmm. and also no bass or violin or viola to, 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 to speak of. their minds in in the fifth track now when i had a chance to review the soundtrack there weren't any track names so i only know them by number at, yeah, no at problem. this time but when, when we put it yet. in the playlist i'll have the names in the playlist itself but no uh for, for for the purpose of this track five the cellos like go crazy and i love that and i love how you're pushing them to the limit of their range and it makes that adds to tension right when you're hearing an instrument strain in a way. I mean, they're professionals, so they're probably not actually straining, but the but the instrument sounds like it is, right? And I love how unsettling that is. Talk to me about that. Oh, you're, yeah, you, uh, again, you you absolutely nail the, the intent behind it. The goal is always, I remember there was uh, Benjamin Zander, the conductor, uh, you know, most famously associated with Boston, uh, did, gave a great TED talk like 15 years ago, one of the first TED talks I ever saw, where he referred to what he called single cheek music, uh, which is music that makes a musician literally lean forward in their chair, kind of 
half off their ass uh, uh, because because it they realize oh I I really need to pay attention to this and yeah. and uh, I'm always constantly kind of trying to educate myself on on every instrument I write for whether it's the rank and file members of the orchestra that I've written for countless times to, you know, the Zafoon uh, or, or anything else that I'm far less accustomed to. Uh, The goal is always a kind of continuous education where I can really learn how to write parts that are, uh, they're not unnatural to the instrument, but they might be challenging in the, the goal being to challenge the musician enough that they, it's like a, a good personal trainer who says, just five more reps. I know you can do it. And it's not that they're being put in a physically compromising or unsafe situation or anything like that. It's just that, you know, if they didn't have that trainer kind of, they, they might have stopped five reps earlier. The goal is a kind of, it's a weird analogy, but the, it's, the goal is, you know, to, to kind of write a thing that makes them lean forward uh, and go, you know, okay, th- th- this is definitely playable. But just give us a take or two to <laughs> kind of get it into our system before we can then kind of take it apart. And uh, I, I remember once there's a fantastic uh, musician here in, in L.A. that uh, plays on all the big sessions uh, named Heather Clark. She's a flute player. Um, you know, she's one of the principals in John Williams roster. She played all the she had very prominent credited featured solos in his score to the uh, uh, Big Friendly Giant of Spielberg's from a few years ago. And she's been featured on a bunch of my scores, um, and and uh, she's a true, you know, just ferociously talented flute player. And I remember doing a session with her years ago, and I always love asking about the the session musician's perspective uh, working with various composers. Yeah. And I had just listened to maybe one of the Ice Age scores or Happy Feet or something of John Powell's. And you know he 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 has such a gift for these absolute just fireworks shows within the orchestra, and I asked her you know as a flute player in particular I'm very curious your experience of playing for John Powell because she's played on a million of his scores, <laughs> and she said something that has stuck with me forever and that has become my mantra that's become my goal. She goes, John has a an uncanny ability to write like four BPM lower than what would be unplayable. Uh, And so this idea that it is playable, but, and we're like, we're like high-fiving when we nail it because it's so difficult, but it's not difficult for the bad reasons. It's not difficult because you don't know how to write for flute. That's that's always the the challenge that composers fall into is yeah. how, did I write a thing that is unnecessarily difficult? Like did I put this in a key that the fingerings very inorganically are going to map to? Um I had this I totally was guilty of this uh last year I had a session uh, here in town on the Fox stage where I had been writing for the Hardanger fiddle as an overdub, which is a beautiful instrument that has these sympathetic strings. So it's essentially an eight string violin, but the, the four of those eight strings are purely sympathetic vibration. And they're, and they're, they're, they're tuned in a way that you can't really retune them without essentially taking apart the whole instrument. So what that means is if you want to get the full benefit of 
those sympathetic strings, you have to place the instrument in one of very few keys that the overtone series is going to mesh with. So, sure. you know, that means basically the maximum amount of sympathetic vibration that you're going to get is relationships in octaves and fifths and fourths. Mm-hmm. Um, and the strings of the Hardanger fiddle mean that keys like A major and E major and their counterparts are going to be where that fiddle sounds the most like the Hardanger fiddle and doesn't just sound like a normal violin. Because if I if I wrote a Hardanger fiddle part in B flat, Rachel, in the case of the musician I like to use, is a Hardanger fiddle specialist up in the Pacific Northwest. You know, she um, she could play in B flat. It's not like it's any different from a normal violin in terms of what keys it could play in. But if you wanted to actually lean into what makes it special, you have to you have to engage with its own idiosyncrasies. Yeah. So I wrote this piece in a, the result was it kind of forced my hand and I, I wrote this piece in G sharp minor, um, <laughs> which on the face of it, you know, it sort of sounds intimidating, but it's actually really not so bad. Uh, it's just a little uncommon. So some of the fingerings might be a little bit um, like, oh, I haven't kind of played this particular succession of notes as recently mm-hmm. as certain other keys, but all the musicians, especially a kind of LA orchestra, everyone can handle it. But I had put in these really fast bassoon runs where they're, you know, that in a key like, say, B flat or G minor or C minor would be not trivially easy, but very natural on bassoon with the with the natural layout, the natural inclination. But subjecting them to G sharp minor because the Hardanger fiddle had forced me into that. <laughs> I made the mistake of essentially just writing a part like I would have written in a different key. Um and, and putting it in this one, and I remember uh, Anthony, uh, the Anthony Parnther, the principal bassoon, one of the great musicians here in L.A. and phenomenal conductor in his own right. I remember I, I was like, you know, how are you doing back there? And, you know, shouting across the whole orchestra. And he was just like, you know, I don't remember what he said, but in typical Anthony fashion, something along the lines of enjoying the fact that there's only 18 minutes until uh, the session's over or something like that, you know. <laughs> It was, I definitely was torturing the bassoons in a way that was, that was actually not ideal. Like it actually, it, it, I, their suffering was not the good kind. It was, <laughs> it was, it was me sort of falling into the trap of thinking all keys are created equal in the hands of a great musician. Uh, and no matter how great they are, and he's world-class, undoubtedly one of the best living bassoonists. There's no, could there be, there, there be no yeah. question. It just, it's just the demands placed on it are the instrument doesn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And so that to me, I know this is all super tangent, tangential off the dimension of the celli, but, but that the goal is always, this is where I'm working with someone like Tina Guo on a regular basis or, or another great cellist, Ro Rowan, who can do basically anything. They let you constantly figure out where are those boundaries where this is hard because it's, it's challenging, but fundamentally doable versus yeah. this is hard because you're not a cellist right. and you just wouldn't have written this if you knew what you were doing. Yeah. And, and, you know, so I'm always trying to kind of be a proxy cellist as, as well as I can. And, and um, it, it's really, it, it's absolutely, I always ask the musicians afterward, especially on a session like this, where it's full of pretty challenging writing, you know, yeah. h- how do you feel about today? Was this good? I really do want your feedback. Um, and, and in general, everybody seemed to, you know, really have fun. And one of them, one of the, uh, those rock star Nashville cellists tweeted at me uh, just an hour ago or whatever with the, with the release of the soundtrack to say, this was a, this was a good day. We really had fun with it. And that really means a lot to me yeah. because work really hard to make it fun for them. You know, a lot of scores are very boring. 
you know, because you just need pads and things. And yeah, so it's like the goal is to make them go to walk home feeling exhausted and satisfied, yep. you know, like, like, <laughs> like a good day at work. Like, this is why I do this. Like, that's the it's very lofty. You know, we probably very rarely, if ever, achieve that level of like, this is why I learned the cello. But if you can come within even striking distance of reminding them that, that this can be really artful and challenging and fun, and uh, then that's, I consider that part of my job, you know, part of my goal. bringing up something reminded me of uh, something I meant to say about the tubas, which I feel like I heard some tuba rips, like ripping up the, <laughs> yeah. up the uh, you know, just harmonic series of what a tuba can can do. And, and that was really Definitely fun yes. too. Yeah. Yeah. Again, they are tubas. Tubas can practically play the full horn <laughs> range. Like yeah. they're, they're, they're so under and up high, they're a shockingly beautiful lyrical instrument. Yeah. And then down low, they can be, they can be, it's a different color because obviously it's a different construction mm -hmm. from, uh, they're, they're more like giant French horns than they are like trombones. Uh, they, they're, they're, they're acoustically almost identical to the horn. There's just more tubing so they can go lower, <laughs> but they are, they are fundamentally built with that same kind of, design conceit or very, very similar to it. Mm -hmm. uh, so they have a very round sound uh, and sort of their default position is a relatively slow attack, much like the horn. There's a bloom to their pitch relative to the kind of instantaneous nature of of uh, the trombone, which is why, of course, the chimbasso, the sort of trombone version of the tuba has become so popular in Hollywood circles, salute, uh, uh, because they... Um, they give you that bottom range. They give you the full range of what the tuba could do, all the way to the bottom of the of of sound, but uh, but with the color and the attack of a trombone. But I always say, don't discount how ferocious they can be, though, just because they're so associated with that warmth and that kind of pillowy quality. They are not uh, to be seen as sort of gentle giants only, and right. the rips. All the other kind of weird pitch bends and yeah they they and it's fun to push the musicians to that because they're always left out of all those fun <laughs> sessions you know they <laughs> right weird because we did some sampling of just effects and things and crescendos of wild sounds of things that i could you know find ways to build like to, to then you know mangle in an audio post-processing way to, sure. to make weird sounds from and so i needed things independent from what was written you know, in the score, we had a kind mm -hmm. of separate sampling session as part of the recording process to just get some effects and additional uh, things with that particular lineup of, of sounds, you know, the, the celli and the, the low brass. And so they got to have a little bit of fun that they're hopefully not so accustomed to that day. Um, also, you know, just continuing with the low end, 
of uh, the palette of instruments in the world, we had a lot of electric bass in there. And by we, I mean you, of course. So uh, talk to me about that choice, bringing in uh, electric bass and all the fun distortion and, and cool things that that instrument does. Yeah, it was, it, you know, the game is broken into campaigns and campaign three introduced some new, um, some, some like totally new enemy types, you know, some new kind of types of aliens uh, that are, that are, you know, new to the franchise. I think like the studio got to kind of create their own uh, additions to the, the franchise. Um, and it, it clearly lent itself in a way to, it lent itself to, fundamentally new colors uh that that are not as common now you know this is where uh the golden fall is kind of the closest comparison because he also just kind of goes off the rails a bit um and and i i wanted that feel i wanted to kind of think oh this is just kind of gnarly um some of my earliest um experiments you know i, I kind of went a little metal with it and i remember they said you know it's you're starting to we're starting to kind of like feel the gravity of doom uh and sort of the 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 towering the towering uh long shadow cast by mick gordon uh and i most certainly not only is that not really alien at that point um but i would dare not uh invite myself to comparison to mick gordon uh he's just so unbelievably excellent and um so, but I thought there is something to the kind of kinetic energy, though, of that. And so, mm -hmm. Tom Straley, my my, who I work with just as constantly and and joyously as Kristen, the two of them are really the two most constant collaborators in my life. Called up Tom, and we had a discussion about creating a kind of hybrid sound by layering electric bass with baritone guitar. Mm. acoustic baritone guitar and electric baritone guitar so huh. you end up with usually around four to six simultaneous he tracked the part six times oh, cool. on these various instruments where you know he would track it on baritone down an octave in and then you know and then a, like th like electric baritone with a pedal an octavizer pedal that's pulling it down an octave and on acoustic one of the things that was cool was the acoustic baritone there's a bunch of places where we tracked it and I literally just dropped it in with zero anything. There's no oh. reverb added. There's no EQ. It's wow. just raw. It's just literally the mic directly into the mix and, and leave it because nice. it, it had such a kind of crispy little sound that it added. And then, and then it's kind of like you hear the attack of the unadorned baritone just doing the like that that instant speaking of a plucked string that happens you know just there's no there's no delay in the sound and then the the sort of sustain is carried by all the electric contributors to it so you get this very precise sounding attack and this warbly weird distorted sustain as a result uh mm -hmm. and it, it, it ended up being a wonderful kind of blend that that he helped me find and then the, another ingredient to that as well was Something I've gotten in the habit of doing is that I've done now sort of three projects in a row and I, and I plan to just kind of continue forever is I've been doing these contests where like when I, I was, I, I remember I was, it all started with the game I did Erica where I wanted to, Erica was going to be announced and released on the same day, which was a rare thing. Like yeah. no, no trailer. No, it was just like they, they, 
Jack Atridge, the director and the lead actress, Holly Earl, went on stage with Jeff Keighley at Gamescom and just said, here's our game available now on the PlayStation store. Like just, and so I thought, well, I would like to find some way to kind of tease that there's a score that I'm, that, you know, I was really grateful to be part of. I loved working on that game. It's such a cool game. And I wanted to kind of hint that there was something cool coming, but I obviously couldn't mention anything because the game was totally unannounced. So I, I put the theme, I, I basically did like a one finger version of the theme. Like literally just here's a melody with no, there's no harmonies. And it's, I just put it as here's a sheet music as just treble clef, no indication of instrumentation. And here's a recording of me plunking it literally one note at a time on piano. At, and But with nothing intended about the piano itself. It's just a, a means to an end yeah. to hear this melody. And so I said, I, will, I, I won't tell anybody how I treated this melody, how I arranged it, nor even what it's from. And two weeks before the game came out, I just released that and I said, I want to hear people's take on this melody with zero context. And, uh, you know, I'll find some takes that I find interesting. There's no, there's no direction to this. It's not, I want to hear the best orchestra or the best this or the best that. Uh, just do whatever your imagination tells you. I will find some entries that strike me as interesting and I'll find a way to work together on whatever next thing is comes along. And so then I got all these amazing covers of that theme that were just totally unlike anything that I had done. And a few that were shockingly alike what I had done. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then brought in those people to work with me on the pathless. Then when it came time to release the pathless, I released a video of here's who I picked from Erica. Here's what they did. And now here's the new challenge. And I released a stem of audio of one of the nickel Harpa bits from pathless of nice. just like, here's just a stem from a mix, uh, do whatever you want. And, there, and so some people put accompaniment to it. Some people stretched it and made drones and crazy. And I got a lot of interesting. So then I pulled four people from that to work with me on aliens fire team. And when fire team came out, I released a new video of here's the winners I chose and, you know, stay tuned for the next contest. Um, and, uh, so one of the guys was this guy named Mikey Parsons, who I sent Tom's guitar tracks to. And I basically said he had done this absolute bizarre, uh, almost, uh, like parody of the pathless. Like he, he went in such a ballsy, weird direction that I couldn't not hire him because (laughs) I just thought everybody looked, it's kind of like, you remember the Westworld, um, Spitfire competition that did you see that a couple years ago when so the sample library company Spitfire that does all the you know BSTs uh, they work with Hans Zimmer and all these other uh, folks and release really high end sample libraries they teamed up with Ramin Jawadi and 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 JJ Abrams and the Nolans on uh, the show Westworld and did a rescore this scene. Um, uh, and, you know, we'll pick a winner and they'll get basically every Spitfire library we've ever released wow. as a prize. Nice. And there were like 10,000 entries and it How? was this whole big thing. I mean, thousands and thousands of composers. And the one they picked, um, they picked because he went super hard left field where it's a lot of them, as you could imagine, were basically like second rate Ramin or second rate Hans Zimmer. where They're very remote control, very, yeah. you know, big big toms and taiko drums and French horns kind of orchestra epic blah, 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 cause it's like a car chase sequence. Okay. And the, the grand prize winner 
he builds and builds and builds, and then he goes into full blown like eight bit chip tunes, um, <laughs> and it was just so courageous yeah, that that's they, one word for it. Oh, and you know, and of course, it caused people. You go on forums, and there's people that are like, "I'm never buying Spitfire again." They were so upset. <laughs> I mean, it was like it was like it was like our version of the premiere of *Ride of Spring*. It was like, what is the, what is the like 21st century? Everyone's at home during the pandemic and losing their mind version yeah. of that. Uh, actually, it might have even been before the pandemic. Uh, but either way, it, it, half the internet applauded him. I was yeah. definitely in that half. The other half <laughs> thought it it artistically invalidated. It, it was one of wow. those like you know we're not friends anymore moment for a lot of people. It was so ridiculous. <laughs> and, but I loved it. I love and, and so this guy, Mikey Parsons, his, his was like that. It was such a, like, it wasn't, it wasn't a bit chip tunes, but what I mean is his interpretation of the prompt of my little contest um, was so left field that I thought, I don't know what this guy's going to do. And that's yeah. exciting. So I remember I just sent him a bunch of Tom's baritone guitar tracks. And I said, here's kind of what I'm already doing with them. But I want you to be the X factor and just play with these stems and I will, I will, you know, mix in there, whatever you do, I'll find a way to kind of mix it with what I'm doing. And so there's a lot of oh. these, there's a lot of these kind of odd flutters and weird colors to the sound that are very much his contribution where I didn't oh, tell him no. how to affect it. I just said, here's your kind of within the queue there, there's a portion of it that is built around this instrument mm -hmm. here are the raw recordings and just go nuts and and he absolutely delivered and so it has a wow. it has a unique quality where cr credit where it's due to to his um contribution there as well yeah and what's his name mikey parsons mikey parsons is what you said that's right okay okay yeah wow. the the youtube video uh that i i if you look up my aliens contest okay uh, YouTube video. I, I I I invited each of the four winners. I I had them film themselves describing their entry and then what they did for Fire Team, so that cool. I could you could see what they did. You know to to be one of the winners that I that yeah. I chose before. And then here's how they kind of applied that to this score. One of the other things I really liked was, and you, you referenced it earlier, how in Aliens, which of course is the second movie that, mm -hmm. that James Horner scored, lots of martial snare drums, mm, percussion, oh yeah. percussion, you know, because it is, they are Marines up in space, right? And so yeah, um, I, I really loved all the, all the percussive things you did. And of course, it, it obviously wasn't limited to snare. So I would love to hear you talk about some of the more unique things that you recorded and used as uh, percussive devices. I mean, there's definitely, yeah, there's a lot of percussion and the snare was one of those where, because that's such a sound in fact yeah if, if i if memory serves um you know horner had like two weeks or something absolutely insane to to turn around aliens i Amazing. mean he, he scored it 
you know, as a very, very last second, the movie was way behind schedule and they brought him in and, and he basically just had to vomit out the score. And I remember if memory serves, Cameron responded to the snare so much that he essentially, like when you listen to the score and it's so prominent in the mix, that was apparently Cameron's doing. And Horner was not actually very happy with that. If memory serves Okay. that, that is itself a little kind of insight into the fact that, um, Goldsmith hated working with Ridley Scott on Alien. Horner hated working with James Cameron on Aliens. And I, <laughs> I, I assume that Goldenthal and Fincher got along well, but Fincher is so unhappy with Alien that he kind of disavows the whole thing and he never worked with Goldenthal again that I know. So I kept joking going, but you know, like I love Matt Hyacin, the creative director and Derek Reyes, our, our audio director and the, and the initial audio director who, who, um, went to a different company shortly after he hired me, Michael Camper. Everyone that I worked with, I get along with great. I love, I'm super grateful to them. Jared Yeager over at Fox, now Disney, who was responsible for the introduction, uh, who, who who introduced me. He's an old friend and he's the one who introduced me to the, the developer. Uh, okay. I kept saying, I don't know if this counts as a real alien or aliens project because I'm having an awesome time. And <laughs> And you're all great to work with and super like you challenge me and you and you respect me and you and you are excited when I do things and then you give great feedback and, and you push me directions that make it better. And I was like, oh, this is very off brand. I'll have you know. And uh, so. Uh, so, yes, but Matt, much like James Cameron, uh, said in one of our very first meetings, you know, let's make sure that the snare drums, that's got to be a thing. Like he said, okay. I don't you know how you do it. Yeah. You know, I leave it to you to kind of work it in how you how you feel is right, but just know that is a valued notion here. So that was one where, you know, I wanted it to be real big and beefy. And so I basically combined recording real snare drum with layering it with several different sample libraries worth of snare ensemble. So you end up with just this kind of inhumanly large, aggressive martial drum corps kind of sound. <laughs> the funny thing is the way it works in game, this is a perfect example of where the album can be quite different from the in-game material oh. because the way it works in game is the snares are basically omnipresent and selectively muted or unmuted so that we would do things like you trigger an engagement with, you know, you, you move into a room and they go, all right, activate the radio uh, to, to call the dropship and then they'll be here in one minute, which, you know, anybody who's played a game before knows I'm going to hit this button and then I have one minute to survive because all hell is going to be coming at me. <laughs> yeah. And so it'll be one of those where, okay, you know, uh, you hit the button and the music starts. Maybe it's not one minute. Maybe it's slightly, you know, there's a little bit of give and take, but there's for sure like one of the first missions is you have to wait for an elevator to arrive. And they're like, it's coming of slowly, of course. Yeah. And uh, so you're fighting at the entrance to this elevator shaft. And we would do a thing where I would have this absolutely just, you know, kind of snare drum part that spans the full queue but it doesn't play the whole time it waits for things like you know how much like are you are you 50 percent through and there's only a little bit left and we just want to kind of 
squeeze the rag that much harder to, to make the crescendo to the end a little bit more and add it in. Or maybe a, 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 an engagement will start really strong and we have the snare drum in there that plays. And then if the, you know, if you're in that engagement long enough that the, the piece actually can loop, the snare won't loop with the rest of it so that it gives your ear a break because it's meant to kind of blow out the mix. Like it's practically all you hear when sure. it's in there because again, it's, it's so attached to the fabric of what makes corners aliens, what it is. But I said, you have to be able to kind of temper it to taste. Like I want to be able to have it in when it's in, in a dynamic way that's driven by gameplay and by the player. So when it came time to do the album, that meant, okay, now I'm just going to subjectively kind of use it where I think it musically sounds best for the for an album cut, knowing that if you were to look at my audio editing in, in Pro Tools or whatever, you'd see a lot of muted snare because otherwise it would just be an all snare album. I mean, yeah. it would be like, you know, it may as well be the, you know, the University of Southern California drum corps, <laughs> you know, with token appearances by other instruments. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I mean, it, it really, it really had the risk of coming off like that if I were to just leave those stems live because it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't exist in game that way. In a way, the goal was to kind of recreate the way it comes and goes in the game, but in a way that's yeah. obviously fixed. Right. So yeah, Joris Hoogstetter did some overdubbing. We also did some cool uh, sort of electronic drums where he he had these drum pads where different areas of the drum pad can be mapped to different sounds. So it's not just an electric snare or something or like in a, like a, like a mm -hmm. sample of a snare. It, uh, we created these sounds. Like I recorded myself speaking, reciting the digits of pi and things like that. And he would map little fragments of those voices to different areas of the drum head and then double the snare part. So you have this, you know, okay. bump, bada, bada, bum. and then he would layer that with this electric, like a sort of essentially like a synth drum. Um, where you're hearing these fragments of like voice that you don't really hear it exactly, but it, it, there's something in there where you go, I don't really know what that is, but there's something in there beyond the snare. So we did a bit of that as well. So it was actually kind of like electronic percussion that he that he tracked as well. Yours, um, wonderful musician who I work with a lot, who 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 is always he always much like Tom and Kristen, he's always such a valuable source of. Well, we've never tried this before. What if we tried this? Uh, you know, he's just he's just so talented and so creative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is Pro Tools your DAW? Is that what you write in? No, no, I I, I write so. in uh, Digital Performer. Um, okay, because um, it didn't look and, like Pro Tools in your in your in your video, but I was unfamiliar with with it. I used Digital Performer in what nineteen ninety five in uh, as an undergrad. Performer. So <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. It's been yeah, same. I, I started losing it only a few years after that. I think ninety nine uh, yeah. was the first time I tried it, and it's it's come a long way since then. And <laughs> yeah. and. Um, I, I'm very at home with it. You know, I've had a lot of friends uh, over the years, you know, move around all different uh, DAWs and, and it seems like yeah. DP is kind of uh, the, the sort of the underdog of the DAW world. It seems like everybody prefers Cubase or Logic or even Reaper. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think 
I think Brian Tyler may be the only composer I know of that actually uses Pro Tools as his DAW. But we always mix, you know, my mix engineer, the stages always record in Pro Tools. So sure. invariably, yeah. you know, I have a I have a pipeline. I work I work with a few folks where we've developed a, a really solid pipeline for basically essentially converting my DP files into Pro Tools sessions. Sure. And then on a game like this, what I very often do, because I'm I use Pro Tools. Uh, but I'm just so much faster in DP yep. that e even though Pro Tools is probably better for audio editing, I'm, I'm actually faster at it in DP as well. So uh, I very frequently, when I have to go to deliver the various stems and things that the, the that Wise or FMOD is going to need for the game, I will frequently export everything back into DP from Pro Tools, but as now properly mixed stems sure. exactly as we as we got them to working with steve kempster who uh, is the mixer i use most frequently and and actually end the the life of this cues in dp where they began that's kind of the project that i didn't always used to do that I used to always end in pro tools and and that was that was the end of it but mm -hmm. um as the editorial needs have gotten more complex just as i've gone as i pushed myself harder on the interactive music front you know, games like Erica and the Pathless and whatnot, where I'm, I'm really trying to kind of go places I've never personally been mm -hmm. with interactive music and which are hopefully kind of in general less explored in the world of games. Uh, it's just required so much editing that I can just do it faster in DP. And it's also nice to have all the MIDI data in line with it because then I'm, I'm, I'm kind of always oriented on where I am. I'm not looking at waveforms. I'm actually editing based on the MIDI right. and cleaning it up based on the waveform, whereas in Pro Tools, you know, you're, you live a little bit more purely with the audio. Yep. Yep. With the wave shape. And and that's one of the things that's fun too, about watching your videos that again, I encourage everyone to, to look up on YouTube is, yeah, is these kind kind. of behind the score videos where you're, you know, sometimes it's, it's the DAW that you're seeing, not the, not mm -hmm. the music itself, which is, right. I think really helpful for people who can't read music, right? You're seeing, seeing, uh, shapes, shapes that aren't audio wave shapes. Yeah, it's it's interesting how kind of like we were saying with our with our uh, sticks with boots on uh, <laughs> video. I knew I'd get us back there. I know uh, it's legendary. Um, the uh, yeah, the the sheet music videos that we do, and and you were mentioning how even for folks that can't read music, mm -hmm. there's they're 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 kind of oddly watchable. Uh, yeah. as as almost a, a kind of almost like a odd form of. A like a visualizer, you know, in Winamp, but but one <laughs> yeah. that's like a little bit more precise in what mm -hmm. it's doing, and not it's not random or kind of procedural. Yeah. Um. And uh, I think a, a a piano roll in a DAW can have a similar quality. It, it kind of almost looks like Guitar Hero, where you know a bunch of short dots versus long held that that people yeah. kind of intuitively get what that means. Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the folks at Harmonics, uh, who, who you know first started figuring out how do we visualize sheet music to a non-musician in developing, I wouldn't be surprised if the piano roll was actually explicitly their inspiration. I never thought about it till this moment. I've right. never asked them, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case because it is so intuitive. Yep. That even though it actually is mapped to a kind of sideways verticalized view of a piano. Yeah. You don't have to even be able to spot that to just get like, oh, a tight cluster of them together is clearly a cluster. Little sparse dots are going to be very pointillistic. Like it's just, it's just mm -hmm. intuitive. Yep. 
far more so than sheet music itself. Right. Uh, and um, so, yeah, anyway, I, I'm glad that I'm glad that you like those. It's very kind of you to, yeah. to shout that out. It's it's those are those are fun to make because um, they kind of let you do everything. They let they let me talk about the, the composition, but also the production and the different layers of sound mm -hmm. and the different ways that different effects are achieved, whether through recording techniques or plugins or or mix techniques or whatever, just to kind mm -hmm. of say, here's how we got this sound, you know, and yeah. hopefully someone can can hear that and it, hopefully it gives them an idea to take that and run with it and go come up with the next thing. Austin, in addition to, you know, obviously all the composition you work on all the time and, you know, working on these these videos, which I know you have help with that, but you're still doing it and oh, doing yeah, the my, work to make the video, right? Um, well, yeah, just as a brief aside, my, yeah, my, my assistant, Dallas, it's by law, all, all people who in my office have to have Texas city names. <laughs> uh, we're currently taking interviews with Waco and El Paso and San Antonio. Galveston. Galveston. Galveston is a uh, very useful part of the team. Uh, no, Dallas uh, has been my assistant for a few years. And, and one of the reasons I hired him was that in addition to being a fully trained and, and, and qualified musician, he's a jazz trumpet player kind of in his origin story, but he's a composer who could, you know, handle his own in any manner of any number of orchestral kind of contexts or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Um, He's also, uh, you know, quick study and 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 was fluent and savvy with things like Premiere, video editing, uh, you know, um, After Effects and creating animations and transitions and and really kind of slick stuff. He's also yeah. a pretty talented visual artist, and so, you know, creating custom fonts and all those kinds of things. It's one of those where he really appreciates, like, okay, we're doing a video about Alien. If you go back and watch the films, there's a very specific kind of low frame rate, grainy yellow quality to their video monitors and things. So it's like, those are the kinds of fonts. Can we find those fonts and can we duplicate them? And can we have that kind of aliased, like the, the, the kind of lines in the middle of the lettering and what other, and he's a nerd for that stuff and the typography. And so we can really create things that are, that are artfully conceived, even if they're fundamentally a, a, a tutorial. So yeah. I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it uh, without, I mean, we've, we've, we've made like 200 plus videos for my channel now. It's amazing. Like that. I mean, they're just about once a week, sometimes multiple per week. And anyway, I just, I, I since you mentioned it, I, I can't not shout him out as well uh, as an invaluable member of the team yeah. and who's, who, who's, who's placement on my kind of broad team. I, I, I hold with great, gratitude because he has a lot but I, I cut you off to say that i just couldn't not give him credit i apologize no, though but i'm grateful you, you did gonna... mention him because i mean really those those videos are fantastic um he, he does really really fine work i wish i had uh, just this much of his skills i just do all my <laughs> editing in iMovie and i'm like that's all i can handle right now it's like <laughs> So that's, yeah, that's literally, cool. I tried that once, and I, I exactly <laughs> one video on my channel is that, which is if you go, there's a playlist of what I call raw session video, uh, okay. where 
I, I created the channel because I thought I can do these myself. This is long before I hired Dallas. If you look at the Assassin's Creed Syndicate raw session video, that was one I made myself in iMovie, and it was so tedious. Even just that, <laughs> so simple, that I thought, oh man, never again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he and, and I have to say also, you know, he. It's not that I just turn him loose and then upload the video. I, we go back and forth, and I oh, kind of sure. direct these things very anally, and he deserves credit for his kind and patient uh, implementation of what are sometimes like eight page emails of at seven seconds and nine frames. It really needs to do that. And like, uh, you know, <laughs> giving me a whole new appreciation in all seriousness that when I, when I work on film and TV, particularly, and the directors come with sometimes the most particular feedback sitting in a, I, I don't want to call myself a director just because I direct him editing for my YouTube channel, but it's some cousin of directing. Um, and it has given me a new appreciation uh, for the feedback I'm getting from directors and seeing it through their lens. And I, I think it's actually made me a better film composer oh, wow. uh, to, to like to sit in a in a quasi director's chair for these YouTube videos and sure. to really understand the parameters that you're playing with and the goal to try to just make it as good as it can be. Anyway, that's now twice uh, <laughs> that I've. Prevented you from actually saying what you were going to say. Not at but, all. I just wondered if you're still doing your podcast too, on top of all of these other things. Yeah, it's it's funny how uh, uh, doing a few, uh, depending on how you frame it, I guess I have kind of four different podcasts uh, of varying regularity now. We do this weekly Amazing. show, Play, Watch, Listen, uh, where we just kind of geek out about the game industry and pop culture in general, really. And that's or you just and Troy, interests. right? That's me and Troy and two others, um, a writer who, uh, named Alana and a game director named Mike. So it's kind of like the composer, the actor, the director, the writer mm -hmm. talk about games. And we do that once a week on Alana. Alana Pierce is her name. It, 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 she hosts that on her channel. And we just recorded this week our episode 116, I think. Uh, it was one of those where we've somehow managed to maintain a very nearly weekly pace, even though all of us uh, have fairly complicated lives. Um, and then the, and then Troy and I, just the two of us do this uh, series called you got to hear this uh, where basically just nerd out about some, uh, it's basically me saying, I can't sleep at night knowing you've never heard some random piece of music that I love or a kind of curated playlist that follow a theme. Like one of one time we did one of here are some of my favorite highlights of 90s romantic comedy scores, which I think is a wildly underappreciated sort of subgenre of film music because the 90s saw scores like um, My Best Friend's Wedding and uh, um, uh, Father of the Bride, which was kind of the grand finale because I just I think that score is absolutely gorgeous. One of my favorite Silvestri scores and, you know, and he has so many classics that it's easy for that one to kind of get lost in in between the the forest gumps and the back to the futures and the predators of the world and and but back, but father of the bride one and two are spectacular scores so it's like it's a, here's an hour of us talking about scores like that dave james Newton howard is another absolutely oh, yeah. amazing score and mm -hmm. uh, so yeah we do those uh we did one we did one all about the alien franchise when when fire team first came out where i kind of said you know here's some great aliens some aliens some alien three um and if i would dare uh, add myself to the playlist. We ended it with uh, kind of uh, the world premiere of a little, here's a little sneak peek of Fire Team.
then on top of that, um, you know, my girlfriend, Angela, we, we started doing one. She's a painter. And okay. so she, we, we, uh, we kind of labeled our collaborative efforts, brushes and keys. And, uh, and so then this, she just had this idea a few months ago of what if we did a brushes and keys podcast where we, you know, it's a little bit more structured than it's, it's a little closer to, you got to hear this where it's kind of, we decide in advance the topic and we kind of yeah. think about it ahead of time so we can come to the table with something as opposed to play, watch, listen, where we just sit down and just say, so what's on your mind? And the four of us just immediately get lost in conversation, like, <laughs> like four friends at a bar basically. Yeah. Um, and that's been really fun. And, and as if, as if all those weren't, as if life weren't sort of crazy enough, um, dice the academy of interactive arts and sciences that do the dice awards mm -hmm. um they have a podcast called the game makers notebook which is principally hosted by the i think he's ceo is the correct title i, I should know that by now um essentially the founder of of um uh insomniac that make you know ratchet and clank and oh yeah and um the uh, um the um the spider-man the the spider-man uh yeah. The, the the unbelievably um, satisfying and amazing um, uh, Spider-Man game. Ted Price uh, is the he's sort of the host talking to sort of fellow um, founder and CEO. I just looked it up because it was driving me crazy. I, I wasn't 100 percent confident in that. Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, founder and CEO of Insomniac, Ted Price, is sort of the main host where he talks to, you know, colleagues to the, the Tim Schafer's, the Neil Druckmann's of the world, yeah. um, you know, other kind of studio heads, particularly AAA studios, you know, Respawn, whomever else. And it's a great podcast. And I was very honored when they reached out to me and said, would you like to be kind of his parallel in the musical side? So it's basically just these, these, I, I kind of got to pretend I was you in a way. Uh, <laughs> it's led to um, uh, just sort of shop talk composer to composer where I just get to call up a, a friend, you know, say, oh, you know, I saw that uh uh you know like for example um the new uh um uh the new gotham knights game that's coming out soon you know i've got a schedule to chat with them so we can talk a little gotham knights we could talk a little horizon we could talk a little uh, uh assassin's creed to talk a little uh uh alien isolation mm -hmm. you know we do these like hour and a half long not unlike your format uh chat so it's just kind of composer to composer and i've been doing that the last several years and it's been absolute um joy really to have this format to just really get into it nerd out with a fellow composer in a way that it's really all about them it's not just two, the two of us talking but it's very much their body of work as a whole you know usually it's most everybody are composers where we t we time it around whatever their latest release is but they're people that have been around for a while so we're able to yeah talk about you know years worth of interesting work they've done nice um and it's been i've just loved it as an outlet Obviously, as poor, unfortunate listeners discover, I can't really shut myself up too easily. 
Um, and so to have an excuse, you know, this whole world of podcasting to have an excuse to just talk where I go, hey, if you don't like it, don't listen. Right. <laughs> uh, right. It has been a fun it has been a fun outlet, I have to say. So yeah, it's been it's been good to have those to go to and do and talk with buddies and make mm-hmm. new friends. You know, got oh, to yeah. got to meet new composers and I've actually they've actually had me start to in, to meet actors because Troy is such a close friend. They mm-hmm. said let's have Troy on the Game Maker Notebook. So because I interviewed Troy initially just on the backs of our relationship, yeah. they then said would you like to be kind of the actor host? So I did. I I got to interview as my second actor Maggie Robertson. Who's who plays Lady Dimitrescu from Resident Evil, uh, nice. the the sort of like instantly iconic character from Resident Evil uh, Village, and she really is that character. She's well, she's not that character in the evil sense, but she is like she's I'm I'm six bordering on six one, and she's taller I think than I am. <laughs> so she's just this commanding presence of a yeah. person, super outgoing and charismatic, and literally got to you know meet her and then instantly turn on the mics and start recording, which is not normal for me to to sort of meet someone in real time in a recorded mm. format where mm-hmm. all my kind of getting to know you questions are literally part of the show. Yeah. And it's been really fun to do that too. And never that's been a really novel experience. So wow. Um, in any case, yeah, it, it is, it is, yeah, that's been fun. I don't know how you keep up with all of it. I really don't. It's amazing. <laughs> Google calendar. Google uh, calendar, you know, exactly. I, I, yeah, I get, I get, I get my little alarms on my phone to know what I'm yep. supposed to be doing right now. Uh, and that, yeah. that saves my life mm-hmm. and it's just fun. I mean, what all these have in common is they just come from a place of, I like it. Yeah. You know, I, I love listening to creative people talk about their process uh, I, I'm 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 insanely grateful that someone like you uh, is interested in my process, and because it's fun to share, it's fun to say, yeah. you know, here are the ideas that I came up with, and if anybody else finds them interesting, then that's cool, and if someone else finds them useful, even better. Yeah. You know, that's why it's fun to share. It's sort of this community of composers is so wonderful. I mean, you've been to GDC, you've been to, yeah. you know, the 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 various, you know, like game sound con those kinds of environments where mm-hmm. it's a great community and i i feel this consensus uh continuous gratitude to be part of it and and i consider this sort of thing one of multiple ways that i i hopefully hopefully very obviously it's me trying to kind of give something to that community because i, mm-hmm. I owe them so much i've met so many f- friends and, and collaborators and musicians and everything through these colleagues and and so many have become such dear friends that that uh, half the reason I like to do all this stuff is just the hope that I do my part to kind of leave it better than I found it. You know, mm-hmm. when I invariably disappear, one either either because you know my my crazy Ponzi scheme has been found out and I got to hit the road <laughs> and go all Edward Snowden and disappear, uh, yeah. or uh, or you know my number my number comes up and my my days are done. Whatever it is. Um, you know, I'd like to think that I added something to the community that meaningful because God knows I got so much from the community that was so meaningful that it's the least I could do. Hopefully I hopefully I give more than I get, but I, <laughs> I, I get so much. It's hard yeah. to keep up, to be honest, because there really are that many just wonderful people. It's it's it is actually funny because I always used to say that the composers that tend to be most successful don't usually have a lot of composer friends. They tend to have a lot of director friends and game maker friends and editor friends and cinematographer friends. That tends to be what leads to them having work opportunities because composers aren't in that, you know, other than hiring typically younger 
you know, college, straight out of college types, like yeah. usually the ones that work for composers are slightly younger. No, that's not always the case because there are some composers who do additional music and that kind of thing that are yeah. veterans that have been around a while and, and, and they're actually very in demand in that role. Uh, but broadly speaking, you know, like Dallas, he's, you know, young guy and, and any people I hire tend to be young and, and, and sort of fresh face. And you're, you're giving them, you're giving them one of their first employment opportunities. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, meanwhile, most of my friends, people I talk to on the phone hang out, have lunch, breakfast, dinner with, go to hang out with, go to a party with, they tend to be directors. They tend to be, cause that's just, I've always loved hanging out with that crowd. And then, and obviously the fact that I naturally gravitate towards that crowd has had this byproduct of leading to career opportunities because your friends tend to be on that side of the table. So I always kind of said it didn't, I just thought, well, you know, it doesn't bother me that most of my, that most of my friends aren't composers. Um, It kind of makes sense that I would just naturally gravitate towards a different crowd. But I have to say, especially catalyzed by all this podcasting and stuff, I've really shored up friendships with composer friends Mm. uh, in, in the last, five to 10 years in ways that is, is feels new. Like I, I, I really, I have a lot of, I have a lot more friends, like close friends that I really cherish their friendship in the composer world than I ever kind of thought I would have. Uh, and I, and I really enjoy that these outlets give me an opportunity to kind of celebrate them and, 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 and like shine a light on their work. And I get to know more about their yeah process. And I, and I love, and I love, it's so much fun, like, especially when it's someone who works in TV or something where you're, there's kind of like, like Bear, for example, Bear McCreary has, over the last few years, you know, he and I have become pretty close and he's a phenomenally talented guy and, mm-hmm. and I have a really wonderful dynamic with him. And it's so fun when like, you know, each new episode of Rings of Power to be able to like text and go, you know, that cue at 27 minutes or whatever, that boy, did you really save the day with that? I'm admittedly not super crazy about the show, but there can be no question on the quality of <laughs> yeah. his work. Yeah. And, and it actually like tricks me into enjoying it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I say that, look, you know, some people are really, really harsh on it. I think that that's unfair. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no question that thousands and thousands of people worked insanely hard on that show to make it all that it could be. Yep. And, and I, I'm as someone who has worked on things before that, you know, got critically slammed, uh, I have a, I have a bit of a, uh, a soft spot for saying it's not as bad as you're saying it is. It's never right. that, but nothing is ever as bad. true shit is very rare. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's actually hard to make something shitty because yeah. everyone's trying their hardest. No one, no one ever doesn't care. Yeah. It doesn't matter how big or small their role is. The craft services people want to make sure that the cast are well fed so that they yeah. can do a good job. Like everybody cares. But nonetheless, I, I can't deny that that I've been a little uh, underwhelmed um, by by the show. Uh, I partly had probably unfair expectations of it, since I like so many others, big fan of Peter Jackson's films, and mm-hmm. so. But but Bear to me has absolutely just crushed it. I mean, it's just yeah. he he already was great, even within this genre with God of War and whatnot. He you yeah. know he's demonstrated a real kind of knack for that kind of grand old fashioned, mm-hmm. uh, very thematic kind of score. But it's been really gratifying to to be able to just send messages going. You know, I promise I'm not being some sycophant here. But <laughs> once again, great shit, man. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, you know, so and and I got a I got a bunch of composer friends that that I I take a lot of pleasure in in doing that with because there's just so much talent. You know, there's just yeah. so much. 
there's just a lot of it's such a it's such a fertile community. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my All favorite the, parts is is how people are so willing to to share and kind of get together and have these round tables about what works for them and what new tricks they're trying. I mean, it's I say it a all the time in on this show how just how how wonderfully positive that community tends to be well and you are very much a part of that community because everybody you know there's not a composer who composers are in two camps those who have been on your show and those who want to be on your show uh that's the only two types of composer that's a true binary uh, and uh, and it's true because I don't know a single composer that has talked to you that hasn't felt so seen. You know, you have you because mm. you really you get it. You obviously years of being kind of a professional music appreciator, as it were. Like yeah. you really hear things. Your questions betray the fact that you really are listening, mm. and you actually get it, and you get games in a way that's very atypical. I mean, I've I've had the great privilege of being interviewed and chatting with a lot of different outlets and folks. And, and there's always something different about talking to somebody of which there are very few. And you are truly among that very precious small crowd of folks that you feel like they're not asking questions of like, you know, so, you know, what, like, how do you, how does one write for an orchestra do you just do you, like do you, how, how can you hear the sounds in your head it's like these are i like i totally understand if you've never talked to a composer yeah that's probably a a very understandable frame of reference and i'm grateful if anybody takes any kind of interest i'm of course i'm deeply grateful and, sure. and if it's if it's like a main so-called mainstream you know like a a new york times or something where you know they probably don't typically talk it's like the arts columnist who mostly talks to filmmakers or actors or something and they, yeah. they're not really so accustomed to me to compose so and they're also asking questions figuring their readers are never reading an interview with a composer before like there, yeah. there's a certain amount of that and i'm i don't ever want to come across like this is the seven thousandth time i've answered this question and it's kind of boring <laughs> yeah. but there's no question that it is the seven thousandth time i've <laughs> answer that question and you've never you've never been like that you've always oh. been coming from a place of of like you know the, the the kind of meat and potatoes is old hat to you and you like to ask questions about things that that it just it belies an actual curiosity way beyond the surface and so anyway yeah please don't ever regard us as a community on which you are in some sense an outsider um <laughs> Uh, I don't believe that for a moment and, and, and just, yeah, it's, it's it to me that to be able to kind of share this community with composers and also someone who, who kind of sees what, what all these composers are, are bending over backward, trying to, to achieve and, and can actually kind of understand that, you know, yeah. it's just so, it's so cool. I end up, I end up really looking forward to your, to your um, episodes, I've, I've, you know, there's sadly many I probably haven't heard, but I've listened to <laughs> lots. Yeah. Um, especially when it's like a close friend, and I just am dying to hear what they have to say, or or, or it's someone whose score I really loved and thought, mm -hmm. oh, I gotta, I gotta check this out. It's like the perfect thing while I'm in my car or or, or whatnot. And and um, anyway, yeah, just I. Uh, I would I would not uh, feel complete if I didn't uh, make you aware just how appreciated <laughs> you are by me and by literally everybody else.
That's very kind of you to say. I appreciate it very much, it's Austin. It's just the facts. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. I mean, I... I loved this score. I, I loved all the time I got to spend with it. I also loved going back through and listening to the old film scores. I mean, I didn't listen to all of them all the way through, but just kind of spotting through and, and it was just a fun experience to, so to do all this. So, um, you know, thanks for writing such badass music as always, I guess. <laughs> Well, it was a little scary. You know, the bar is high. Kevin Reipel uh, did the the, oh, the, yeah. sa- the sadly very maligned yeah. um, uh, Colonial Marine score, but he did a great job. Score he's one so of those good. guys that he really everything he writes is very good. He, yeah. He's he's um, he's a real uh, kind of uh, force to be reckoned with, and a composer whose whose music I, I consistently find myself caught off guard by. Where I'll hear it, and I'll I'll think, okay, yeah, I kind of get the the gesture of this and then three seconds later i'm like oh well i didn't see that coming that was that was cool that was that was like like what a what a great yeah you know voicing that was and it's like oh wow that's a great little riff there and it's just like this constant little kind of ear candy and i remember you know that colonial marines was really held its own yeah um yeah and uh and that was it came up in conversation on fire team you know i said i I don't want to do a second rate Kevin Reipel either, <laughs> uh, you know, like that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, he nailed it. Mm-hmm. So, yep, he did. uh, yeah, I'm glad that you, that you, uh, found excuse to go revisit those, yep. those masters. If that's all I contribute, <laughs> if all I do is remind people of other better scores, uh, then, uh, I'll take that cause they're masterpieces. That's for sure. Austin, what else do you want to say before we uh, head <laughs> off? As you can tell, I've really bit my tongue, so uh, <laughs> I um, I appreciate you prompting me with this open-ended. Uh, now the real fun begins. <laughs> but no, I I've uh, subjected you to my ramblings uh, far too much. I hopefully you'll edit this down to uh, just Not a uh, sticks with boots on and nothing else. <laughs> um, but uh, no, no. As always, I really I, I'm grateful for the um, the chance to to chat and and kind of ramble into oblivion. And your patient, uh, overly. You really need to kind of. I need to. I need to mail you a. I, I'm going to build a Rube Goldberg style um, uh, machine that that has like a nun hand holding a ruler, and I'm going to give you a button to trigger it so that. When I reach the threshold of like yammering beyond any redeeming value, you can just hit it. And no matter where you are in the world, this little thing is going to come down and smack me on the wrist. And I will realize I've outworn my welcome. So in the meantime, your incredible saintly patience with me is hugely appreciated. And uh, and I I wouldn't dare dream of saying anything else. Okay. Well, Austin, thank you so much for all your time today. It's, It's just been great, as always. Pleasure is mine. And we'll do it again.
Thank you for listening to Level with Emily. You can learn more about Austin Wintry, see a playlist, and support Level with Emily at patreon.com slash level. Check out the video of our chat with Austin on the Level with Emily YouTube channel, and please subscribe to the YouTube channel to get all of our new videos of interviews. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services. Composer Brad Gentle manages our YouTube channel. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Inc. Here at Level with Emily, we're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance. It features a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. You can hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.